Welcome to Empowered Leadership. We share candid conversations with successful leaders about what it takes to cultivate the leadership, life, and legacy you desire, and to do it with confidence, ease, and joy. I'm your host, Alexandra Reese. And today I'm joined by partner and friend, Leanne Hughes. Leanne works with organizations to improve performance through more effective collaboration. In addition to her consulting work, which she brings through her own practice that she founded, uh, Leanne is a keynote speaker and two-time podcast host. Her shows are first-time facilitator and work and live large. I love both, and I highly recommend you tune in. And soon, Leanne will be a published author as well. You'll have to listen to the full episode to hear all about her book, and what leaders of large organizations can learn from her writing experience about how to successfully deliver major projects with greater ease. Without further ado, let's dive in. Hi, Leanne. Thank you so much for joining me on another episode of Empowered Leadership. How are you doing today? I'm doing really well, Alexandra. It's always a great start to the day when I get to chat with you to kick off my run of meetings. So really excited about this conversation. Thanks for the invite. Likewise, I was very much looking forward to this as well. Our conversations always leave me feeling uplifted and inspired. Well, given the name of this show is Empowered Leadership, the first question I always like to ask my guests is, what does empowered leadership mean to you? Yeah, such a great question. And when, when I was reflecting on it, I actually had to go to examples. I actually started asking myself, like, who are the empowered leaders in within my own network? I've got a couple, some, you know, entrepreneurship leaders and also some that came to mind internally. I was trying to find like, what is the pattern and theme between all of them? I think number one, it is like they actually show up and they're visible. And this doesn't mean that they walk into your office like, you know, five times a day. But during COVID, I follow a couple of, um, I guess thought leaders, uh, Jenny Blake and Pat Flynn. And when the world was in such turmoil and uncertainty, Pat Flynn was on YouTube every single day streaming. Jenny Blake released a podcast every single day. They just doubled down their efforts wow. to support their community. I wish I could do that. I just kept showing up my regular weekly cadence, but I got so much from these people that were just giving so generously in that way. And the same uh, goes to one of my favorite leaders when I worked internally, uh, Julie Keane. And she, something that also links to Empower Leadership is you feel seen, you feel like your voice matters and you have some impact. And she was just so good at, and I'm sure you would have heard this from previous guests, just, you know, she knew my husband's name. She knew what we were up to on the weekend. Like, she said, and, and not only me, everyone in the business, she was just very good at knowing the whole person. And I don't know how she did it. I don't know if she had her own CRM file or just a killer memory, but I was just loyal to her and she wasn't afraid to have a tough conversation. Yeah, those are two great qualities. One, being present for people. And two, being present in a way that people feel like you're really connected with them. And that second one is a really common theme that I've heard from some of my other guests. And I think there are a lot of different ways you can approach it. But the fact is, is your people in your organization, your people in your community, your clients want to feel like you care about them as people. Because that's what leads us to be loyal and to stay. We have that sense of, not to use an overused word, but that sense of belonging. One thing I wanted to call out or highlight is I love the way you started that answer, which is that you look for patterns. And 
that's the first time I've heard anyone explain their process for thinking about what does empowered leadership mean? Yeah, well, I think on my podcast, I talk about facilitation and some people approach it in various ways. You know, you can look at the definition of a word and people go to Latin roots of it. And I was like, no, that's <laughs> typically can be overdone. And I think it's, I think the, the power in your question is what is your personal experience of it? So yeah. And I think patterning, pattern recognition for us as consultants is like one of the most critical skills. So when we jump into an organization and have to solve a problem, oh, you know, we tend to look absolutely. For what is the pattern? What's the outlier? What's going on? Yeah. For leaders who maybe that's not their strong suit, they're not great at the pattern recognition. What, if any, advice might you have for them for how they could improve that skill? Because I think you're right. It's absolutely invaluable when you're especially leading a large organization and have a lot of information that you could be looking at or trying to make sense of. Yeah, I think it's more the awareness. Cause I feel like once you know that it is an important and relevant skill and you basically, I mean, that's, that's the first part of any, you know, anything is like, okay, awareness that this is actually really important to me as a key leader, particularly working in complex environments. I think so the awareness, but then the second thing is to following that is the trigger to remind you to look for the pattern. <laughs> so even if it's just, yeah, and it's, yeah, like, cause I, there's so much, like I learn so much every single day. It's like, how do you implement the stuff? And if it's really important to you, you have to figure out what the trigger is. Mm. Yeah. A few things I'm hearing that are really valuable. One, knowing that that's a skill you need to practice to having triggers for it. Mm. So having that daily reflection or that weekly reminder, I think embedded in that is knowing what are the types of patterns I might be looking for. So Mm -hmm. in a previous interview I did with Mike Reese, who is the sheriff of Multnomah County, he talked about in a really large organization, you can't keep your eye on all the data at once. You've got to know what are the key indicators that tell me something is in line or out of line or over a threshold. And then that's going to be where I look if it's out Mm. of that threshold. And then I might start looking for deviations there. That is a key skill of a coach and also a leader. And I think it's particularly valuable. And I'm sure you do this all the time in your facilitation work. It's particularly valuable when you're working as a leader of a team and you're going through the process of you've done some ideation You've opened and explored, and now you've got to bring something to a close. And that ability to really take it from we've done all this exploration, especially if it's a complex problem, and bring it to a close is exceptionally hard to do. And it starts with being able often to summarize what are the key points I'm hearing and what are the underlying themes or patterns that we can start to identify and anchor on as a way to start moving forward with a little bit more clarity, structure, and alignment. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think a lot of the time in those meetings, it really is the focus really is on the divergent thinking and getting the ideas. Mm-hmm. And it's like usually in the last five minutes where it's like, okay, we actually need to take an action or decide. And like you said, neglected that whole process, which would, which probably requires more of like converging on what are these actions and decision points. Yeah, you're right. It does seem to be stacked in the, in the other way, the other direction. So you are like the expert facilitator. And I know something that a lot of leaders struggle with in that realm, in addition to what we've already talked about, is the ability to make sure that all the voices in the room are able to contribute, feel heard, 
and really to engage in a meaningful dialogue. What advice would you share to leaders based on your experience about how they can build that engagement? Yeah. Oh gosh, there's so much that I had to write a book about it. So, but I'll, <laughs> I'll pull out probably a few key factors. And I think it goes back to your question is, if you want to hear from all the voices in the room, who are you inviting into that room? And I think a lot of the time we don't, before we even define the meeting and the purpose, we actually aren't very clear on each person's role and what their contribution will be. And as a leader, we might just invite everyone in the department or everyone within the team. And so if you've got, say, more than you know eight or nine people in that room, it is actually very hard to hear everyone's voice and give everyone equal airtime. So even considering what is the structure, do I break it down, what questions or models or frameworks or things can I share beforehand to give people thinking time? And when you set that meeting, make it a either like a decision meeting and say, look, these are the this is, these are things we want to decide upon and really set that specific focus. I think a lot of the time as well in meetings, sometimes like I've got a podcast, it was called First Time Facilitator because that's who I was. And when I reflect back on that, some of the things I was doing is I was asking very broad questions in a workshop, very broad, open-ended questions you know, to the group and no one would answer. And it's because I wasn't very specific with the output. I wasn't giving people time to reflect and respond or have those small group discussions. And that that's, yeah, the, the way that the question was sequenced was, was pretty difficult. So now even when I'm working with new teams, I have like a three-question sequence where I talk about at the beginning of your meeting or workshop, have like a low-friction question, a question that's easy to answer to get people used to engaging with you. And then you can build up the friction of the question in terms of the complexity as you work through. But in the first five minutes, get people engaged, get people responding and active as opposed to setting up the context, you know, get people engaged. As soon as you they arrive, you set the tone that this is an interactive session. Those are the cliff notes. <laughs> yeah. We'll make sure to put a link in the show notes for people who want to get the real details and all the actionable insights. So when your book comes out, they're able to get get into it because there's a lot more to that topic than what you just shared. Mm. I think the really key points that you brought out that I think are super important is one, knowing what is this meeting for? Is this meeting for ideation? Is it for debate? Or is it for decision making? And if it's not for one of those things, you probably don't need a meeting. <laughs> Even ideation sometimes is done better asynchronously so that people who need space or like to have that silent brainstorm time are able to do it when it best suits them and their creative juices are at their highest. The second thing you shared is once you have that clarity of purpose, making sure you have the right people in the room. We are all overwhelmed in our schedules today. So it's a gift when people can get things taken off. And it's only a gift, though, if people know they're not being left out. So you've got to have that clear purpose and you've got to know why you're bringing the people in that you're bringing in. And then that third point I loved is being really thoughtful and judicious about the questions you ask so that you're getting real meaningful engagement. And that is, of course, easier said than done. <laughs> it is easier said than done. And I think I've had the luxury of time on my feet and often failing and often not getting the engagement and thinking, what could I have done in that situation? And it is, you're right. Yeah. Test and trial. Yeah. And that's okay. I think a lot of leaders, especially newer leaders, 
can get really caught up in needing to get it right and needing to be successful. And in a world where vulnerability is now being celebrated in the workplace, a big part of that is being confident in saying, I'm going to try a new way of doing something and we're going to learn together. And it may not go perfect because when we try new things, they often don't the first time. But what I'm going to commit to is learning. And what I ask of you is for your feedback and response. And I wish that more leaders felt like they could do that in their own organization because it's a gift for you to feel like you can stretch yourself. And it's a gift to your people because it models the type of behavior most leaders wish that they would see more, which is that courage to take risks and getting rid of that fear of failure. Yeah, I remember when I was a first time leader and I reflect back on, I used to have these like Monday morning meetings. Oh gosh, this is, you know, I was about 25. It's quite embarrassing, but it was basically me just telling the team what we were going to do. And then in the last five minutes, I was asking for input. So it was this big list of everything I'd yeah. written, the plan, the plan for the week. And even now, like I, I talk a lot about working in public. I was working with a client last week and I, you know, we were going, going to have a meeting, a meeting and I was meant to share my ideas and my solution. And I hadn't nailed it. And I was doing everything to try and like get this right and find the fix. And it actually, I had to wake up myself. Like this is the trigger moment where I was like scrolling around thinking, you know, what, how do I, how do I do this? And I recognized actually I'm in a partnership with this client and it's okay for me to share this the way that it is and ask some questions. And when we jump on the call, let's work through it together. And that's what happened. But it's funny because I, I preach, you know, work in public and, and do, you know, be vulnerable and share your ideas even when you don't know they're they're ready to share yet yeah as someone who preaches that to do it myself <laughs> it was tough like because I thought I had to have the answer so I completely I have empathy for leaders as well because I think you know it, it's tough and it, yeah it, it's tough to do but the result was so much better than me just mm-hmm. you know, losing sleep over it and trying to figure something out on my own yeah it sounds like well first I'll say thank you for your vulnerability and sharing as we all have experienced those challenging moments early in our leadership and management career. Um, So I appreciate you sharing yours. It sounds like you've made a lot of progress, both as a leader and also in your comfort with learning and development. I'm curious, how do you continue to support your learning and development as you progress in your own career? Yeah, I think it's just based on natural curiosity, but also a fear of, I, I don't ever want to be obsolete. I think that's a real driver. I see yeah. um, like my dad using a computer or his iPhone. And I think I don't want to be like that. <laughs> it's like, I want to be, I, I just, some, I just part of, like, it's an intrinsic motivation of, of just being ahead of the curve of understanding what's happening. And so, I mean, even with the, with AI, that's, you know, I'm dedicating 30 minutes every day just to watching a YouTube video, reading something or playing with a tool just so that I can feel like I can contribute um, in conversations ab- about this. It's just yeah, in- an internal driver. I think the other thing I do is I, like, so recently I was in Malaysia, I was chairing a conference there. And the best thing to do after running a session, like a big session like that is to reflect on it. Yet I never give myself time to do that. So I thought, okay, the best way to reflect on this is to be, is to record a podcast about it. And that forced me because I actually prefer, like, I think Adam Grant talks about people that, you know, the, the givers, right. And I, that's my motivation is actually to other people. I don't want to let other people down, but I can very easily let myself down. And so I, uh, I thought, right, this is going to be a value to the audience. 
that's how I capture my learning is actually by doing stuff and sharing with other people to hold myself to account. I love that. So having the a real intrinsic motivator to grow and develop and not becoming obsolete is a great one. <laughs> uh, two, having clarity on what's one area where I'm going to invest in that development and similar to how you schedule in time for recognizing patterns or other critical behaviors, scheduling time in your day, 30 minutes to work toward that. And then three, creating that time to reflect so that you're really distilling all the rich insights and lessons that you can from your experience and bring those forward. Yeah, actually, I was at a conference in California and um, I, I met a lady called Jess Elmy there and she talked about her acronym. I really liked it. The acronym was TILT, Things I Learned Today. So she would just jump on LinkedIn and share her tilt for that day. I think it's a really great way to capture like insights or thoughts or stories or things like that. Cause I think days can pass and we tend to forget what we've actually accumulated, but it's like a public journal of things that you're accumulating and learning on the way. I love that. So what other insights can you share through about uh, your book writing process? I'd love to hear more about what that's been like and what might be some lessons learned along the way that might be relevant for leaders who are thinking about doing their own book or another big time-intensive project like that? Yeah, I think, well, I was reflecting on last year in late December of 2022. And the big, like, I was very disappointed that I hadn't written a book. I was just kind of angry at myself. And, and so then I saw this conference coming up that I was speaking at in February in California. And I thought, wouldn't it be cool to have a book at this conference? You know, is that possible? And I started playing around with it. And I thought, look, I've got this, you know, I've, I've recorded 200 episodes about facilitation. I, you know, I basically know this content. Do you, could I, could I package it up? And I, uh, the timing was 52 days and I, I got it done. Actually, my husband was like, Leanne, it's okay if you go to California without a book. And I'm like, it's not okay. <laughs> so there were a few things that worked in my favor. One is uh, January in Australia is pretty, is, it's a, a bit of a down period. There's not too much client work. People are still on summer break. So that was good. Uh, it meant that I wasn't on summer break, that I was actually at a computer writing. I think with any project, particularly a book, it's really about making some key decisions up front that will make the writing process easier. So mm. being very clear up front in terms of what it's for, being very specific, who will read it. Because as you're writing, new things emerge. Same with like if you're working on a difficult project, these distractions come in the way. And if you're, you're very clear up front and set that criteria, you can then knock them off and say, no, that's not what it's about. Still capture that for maybe a future project, but it, keep the guardrails in place. Um, I think environment is critical. I... Like some mornings I woke up and I'm like, I do not want to even walk into my spare bedroom slash office. I don't want to sit in that chair. <laughs> so I took myself to a cafe. I treated myself to a nice breakfast and a nice coffee in an open environment. And that helped me get to work as well. I also, I mean, I just will take up any hack I can when something important is at stake. I signed up to, it's called the Sisyphe Camps. A guy called Jia Jiang runs it. So he wrote, he did the TED Talk on... Uh, how he went through 100 days of rejection. And I've loved his work. And he started this accountability camp. So every day we had to check in with what we'd done. And so that was over WhatsApp. And so just to feel like someone else was on the end of the line every day was motivation enough. Again, because I know that I have to outsource my motivation sometimes or accountability. Mm -hmm. I can easily let myself down. So I think, yeah, having a very public goal 
uh, expressing that on social media, like I said, just to keep myself accountable. I did it when I decided to run a marathon. The first thing I did was announce it on social media. <laughs> so I couldn't back out. Yeah. And I mean, the, the goal of the book at the conference was really to validate the idea and make sure that people would want to read it. And I actually had someone come up to me and say, I'm running a two-hour workshop in two weeks. So can I have it? <laughs> can you know, I like, have this it This is now? actually the perfect book for you. <laughs> Yeah. So it was like, yeah, like so that was, I, and I actually really enjoyed the the writing. Writing itself is not hard. I think the decisions you make about the book is the hard part. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And I think we underestimate oftentimes the importance of being really thoughtful about framing our goals and putting guardrails around them, such that they're really the right goals for us. And that work to get really clear about what ultimately are we trying to accomplish? What are the right next steps to get there? And doing the work to make sure I'm aligned with that. It aligns with my values. It aligns with where I'm at in my life. It aligns with my schedule and availability. All of that planning up front, it sounds like was really critical to your success. And it's something I think a lot of people don't put enough time into doing. Yeah, I, I think so. And even an idea of what the book, like I wanted it to be punchy. I didn't want any extraneous detail. It needed to be sharp. It needed to be like all of that. You're right. It, and I think also enjoying the process is probably the other part. Yeah. Like I said, the second, the second that I dreaded walking into my own room, I knew I had to switch the process up a bit <laughs> to make it, to make it effective. So yeah. I think you've summarized it really well. That's hugely important. There was some research done uh, that was one of my favorite podcasts is Hidden Brain. It's a podcast all about psychology and how we can use, you know, psychology and the way our brain works to help improve our life. And they were talking about goal achievement. And one of the guests who was on the show was sharing some research they just completed, which was looking at what are the different factors that correlate with um, increased success in achieving our goals. And something they found was that one of the most important things you can do is to ask yourself, what's the most fun way that I could Mm -hmm. achieve this goal? And people who started with that question, so we've got the right goal, we've done the alignment work, now we're talking about execution. People who do what you did, which is say, what's the most fun way I could do this? tend to actually stick with it longer and have better results at the end. Yeah, I I mean, and I know that I, I am more of a sprinter than a marathon runner. And I knew the fact that it was a condensed time frame actually worked in my favor. That was playing to my strength of just get in. I don't want to use the word smash it out. Sounds a bit aggressive, but just you know, it ha- I had a lovely yeah. container around it. As opposed, I think people write a book and there's no end date or so. They're just writing and you can get caught up in your own head. But the second you have, I wouldn't say it was a BHAG, but it was pretty, it was a pretty aggressive timeline. It got me into gear. And even when I was doing that marathon, the thing that kept me going and loving the process was every morning I'd see the sunrise and I'd be taking a new photo. And that, that was probably more enjoyable than, of course, than actually doing the run, actually getting out and seeing the day, you know, seeing the sunrise. I, I love that. That's the best part of running. Yeah. It's important to find what what's in it for us that's fun and enjoyable. Mm-hmm. And I see a lot, especially in on LinkedIn, where I spend a lot of time for my work, 
I see a lot on there around, you know, the focus on discipline and discipline beats motivation and you've just got to show up and do the same thing. And I, I am not a creature of routine <laughs> and I, I like you tend to be a sprinter and not a marathon runner. And I tend to chafe against that conventional wisdom in the sense that I don't think it always has to be painful or hard work. I think we can find ways to make doing hard stuff fun. And by changing it up and keeping it fresh and fun, often that's uh, the path to success. Oh, yeah. I mean, even in workshop design, like I hate, I try to reduce the number of slides that I use or even just like editing slides on PowerPoint or Google Slides. And then I discovered that I could create like design things just using my iPad, sitting on the back balcony, beautiful blue skies and just drawing on my iPad, like the key themes and sharing that on my screen. And so I sort of like fell back in love with workshop design versus, you know, sitting in a PowerPoint editing bullet points, which doesn't light me up at all. Yeah. It's important to know what does it for you. That's something that I always work on with my clients when we are talking about how to bring more joy into life is really understanding what are the ways in which you work, not just work, but the way you process, the way you find fun, the way you spark creativity in your life. And let's, let's work with those strengths, even if they maybe chafe against conventional wisdom of how things are done. Mm. And do you find like, it's not like I sit in front of the computer and I get the best ideas. Like that does not happen. In fact, it's very rare. I come to the computer when I'm ready to execute, but the ideation, like who I should talk to, that all pops out when I am going on a run or when I'm not actually actually focused on it. Like these ideas just emerge. And then, so that's, <laughs> I don't, you know, that sounds very loose and not woo-woo, but that's, that, I figured that out for myself. And like you said, everyone needs to find out what works for them and then how do they use that? to direct towards yeah. their Well, there was uh, some research that was done using brain imaging, imaging, and they looked at uh, how much brain activity there was after somebody had been sitting for 20 minutes working through a topic or a problem, and then how much brain activity there was doing the same cognitive work, but after a 20-minute walk. And when they compared those images side by side, the person who took a walk had much more brain activity. So the science supports that for most of us, being out, moving our bodies is going to be uh, much more generative mm. than sitting down at a desk. So I think your inclination makes perfect sense to like, when it's time to ideate, move your body, get outside if you can. When it's time to come together and execute that's a good time to sit at the desk and do the focused work yeah yeah i, I thank you for the validation it's nice to hear there's some research <laughs> that supports that <laughs> i i love i love research i'm such a data and research geek at heart anyone who's known me for a long time knows if there's a data point to support something it's probably yeah. in my back pocket or i'll find it <laughs> are you going to do a phd like I thought about it. I Sometimes I think doing something in leadership probably is in my future because there's just so much we're learning about the brain and how the brain works and so much we're learning about how 
what I'm personally really interested in right now is all the things that we can do with our physical selves and our emotional and our spiritual selves that enable us to shift our mental perspective and our cognition and then how we show up as leaders. Mm -hmm. So I'm reading this book right now called Brain Energy, and it's all about how our metabolism and our metabolic processes are the key determinant of our predisposition for mental health issues Wow, that aren't genetic-based. So by shifting your diet, by shifting your microbiome, this psychiatrist has been able to treat many, many uh, mental disorders and severe cases of depression and anxiety. And the thing I'm fascinated with is how do we bring that into the workplace? Mm. Because so often we keep those quite separate. Yeah, there's a lot that we kind of dismiss. Uh, this is, it's kind of ten, a tangential example of just spa- even space having an impact. So I, I was working, this is when I was working internally in Northwest Australia. There was an office with our finance team in it and the finance team were extremely dysfunctional. They brought in coaches, they had workshops, no one would get along. It was really awful. I remember walking past, it was like they were sitting in Gollum's cave <laughs> like very dark. They just really all looked depressed, not very quiet. Then the, they got a new lease for another office and they moved this new office. It had uh, high ceilings, natural light. There was more tra- foot traffic just from other people there. In the space of three months, they're all getting along and nothing had changed except for the physical location. I was just incredible to see that. Like I to personally witnessed that miraculous change and people getting along. Hmm. You know, we can throw all the interpersonal skills yeah, and, and so you're talking about like nutrition, right? So what about, and then environment, there's all these other things that we don't really consider. It's quite isolated when it comes to leadership development. And I saw that and I thought, wow, there's so much more here that we aren't considering that is just so important to making teams work, making work work. Yeah, it was fascinating. Yeah, it's so important. And yet I don't see it being brought into the workplace very often. I'm uh, working right now with someone on creating a workshop around how to have courageous conversations. And something we were playing with was, you know, what are the things that you need to do so that you can mitigate the stress and the not your body's natural uh, stress response with your nervous system in advance of walking into the room so that you can stay fully present fully conscious and in choice of your reaction. And as we were talking about that, a big kind of challenge popped up for me, which was, okay, well, I can do all that work for myself. But if you and I are going to have a feedback conversation, it doesn't matter how present and engaged I am. If you yourself are in a heightened stress reaction and you're feeling overwhelmed and shut down. And yet we don't have, in most workplaces in my experience, we don't have a practice of talking about things like the the parasympathetic and the sympathetic Mm -hmm. nervous system and how to do nervous system regulation and how to make smart choices during the day about how you nourish your body and how you move so that you can show up as your best self. Mm -hmm. And those are conversations that just haven't quite crossed into the workplace, even though wellness is such a big topic of the day. Yeah. And even like, even the setup of some of these conversations, I remember a manager emailing me and a colleague, she's saying, just a meeting request. We need to talk. I got that on a Friday. It's <laughs> so all weekend. I'm like, you know, 
my my nervous system's like out of control. And then you're know, stepping into an office, <laughs> oh, no. office her. It's like I would have, you know, and even just the whole setup of that, like I sometimes these conversations when I've had them with other people, it's been a tough conversation. It's like we've gone for a walk or we've been side by side versus staring at each other. You know what yeah. I mean? Like just having that element of of the movement and, and so I'm trying to find out like other ways of, of doing that well. But you're right, it's still <laughs> And particularly remotely as well, because you can't really pick up on how someone is feeling, what meeting they've just come out from, recentering all of that. It's it's a, it's a challenge. Mm-hmm. It's a challenge, and I'm excited to get to do some more work in it because I think there's so much uh, opportunity there. And it's like the door is opened a little, but I think there's a lot more that we could open the door to that would allow us to really dig deeper. As we come to the end of our time, there's one question I want to make sure I ask you. And that is, we've talked a little bit about the theme of unconventional wisdom or conventional wisdom already. And I'd love to hear from you. What's one piece of conventional leadership wisdom that you think is outdated and needs to kind of get out the door? Well, Okay, I found this question because like, every day I can challenge something. So I was like, which one do I challenge today? <laughs> and you, you yeah. said something like, you know, show up as your best best self. I agree with that. The uh, the flip side to that, so the conventional wisdom I want to challenge is bring your whole self to work. I think is been misdefined. I, I don't think the definition is correct in terms of what what we're actually saying here because I feel like anytime that we show up to anything in any context, we we want to put our best self forward. There's times where, you know, we, we can't do that. We need to be vulnerable and authentic. And then these are these sort of buzzwords. I feel like when I hear bring your, bring your whole self to work, what I kind of sense with that is that you can just be yourself and, and just, just be yourself and don't worry about the implications of that. It kind of puts a focus on the individual versus the collective. And I think that work is a collective. It is a system that you're working in between. So it's kind of figuring out how can I bring my myself to work in a way that will better the people around me or the collective. I think that's probably the the part I'd add to the end of it. I'm not saying I'm not talking. I'm not promoting positive to, uh, toxic positivity or anything like that. Absolutely, be honest. But it's it's like almost when you're working in that context of work, how are you putting yourself forward in a way that does contribute. Um, I don't know. I don't know if I've explained that well enough, but I, I just kind of, when I hear that phrase, I kind of shudder a bit. Do you, again, I haven't been very eloquent with this. <laughs> what, what are your thoughts? What I understood is that phrase, show up as your whole self to work every day, feels very self-centered. And in the workplace, it needs to be about the collective we just not about the singular me. And so your recommendation would be adding to the end of that, bring your whole self to work in the spirit of supporting the collective we, not just the me. That is amazing. You did a really great job. Yeah, that's exactly what, yeah, that's the tweet version of it. Yeah. That's really powerful. And what came up as you were sharing that for me, is the importance of having really strong values. Not values for the public, but values for the organization that really define what are the core attributes of how we want to come together and collaborate in service of our vision and mission every day. Mm. Because it, those are an important filter that enable us to show up as ourselves, 
but show up as ourselves in a way where we're going to be supporting a consistent, healthy, shared culture of collaboration. And I, I think we do sometimes miss that collective when we talk about showing up as your whole self to work. Yeah. Yeah. Because I have heard people in organizations just say what they want without regard for someone else. And they said, well, just being my, you know, just bring my whole self to work. It's like, it's not permission slip to just be rude to other yeah. people. So that's, yeah, absolutely where it comes from. It's like the, I don't know if you have this in Australia, uh, but it, it reminds me of that phrase that was really popular when I was a teenager, which was, uh, no offense, but <laughs> it was like, <laughs> hold on. Yeah. Anytime you're authentic selfie, I just but no offense. This is how I feel. It's like doesn't make it okay. It's like if you have to preface what you're going to say with no offense, but or I'm just being my authentic self, and maybe question what you're about to say and do. I think that's that's a great trigger. Absolutely, (laughs) good link. Uh, Oh, I'm reliving some childhood moments there. Well, we are about to the end of our time. I'm curious, what, if any, parting words would you like to share with my audience before we close out our time together? One of my favorite authors, Michael Bungay-Stenia, when he emails, he has this uh, signature line. And I just wanted to share it with listeners because every time I get an email from him, I just, even though it's a generic email signature block, I just feel really good. And he just says, um, you're awesome and you're doing great. I love that. Like, it doesn't matter where you are. Like, we're all doing our best in the way that we, you know, we're all trying our hardest, every single person out there, I hope, in the best way that they know how. I just want to share that with listeners that, yeah, if you're listening in, you're awesome and you're doing great. I love that. Well, thank you so much for your time, Leanne. This was a real joy and I can't wait to talk to you again. Have a wonderful day. Thanks so much, Alexandria, for leading an awesome (laughs) conversation. It's always great to chat. Thank you. Talk to you soon. Empowered Leadership is brought to you by me, your host, Alexandra Reese. And are you a leader who's ready to dramatically improve your leadership, life, and impact and do it with greater confidence, ease, and joy? Then I invite you to find me at my website, opastrategy.com. That's O-P-A strategy.com. And then make sure to search for Empowered Leadership in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows. And please do rate, subscribe, and share so you don't miss future episodes and you can help spread the word. It means a lot. And you can find Leanne at her website, leannehughes.com. I'll include that in the show notes so you know how to spell it. As always, thank you for joining. Have a lovely day and I'll see you next week.